T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Philip Rivers ought to be ashamed of himself. In fact, wait, he may have just been intercepted again because Philip Rivers was brutal last night. Four interceptions, seven the last two weeks. And it was all about Philip Rivers' interceptions on Monday Night Football at Estadio Azteca. 24-17, somehow the Chiefs win this game. They'd certainly played far from their best football. Patrick Mahomes, a career low in passing. That's what stands out to you from his night. 182 yards passing, 19 of 32. He didn't finish with a season high, 59 yards rushing. An odd dynamic for Patrick Mahomes. So you could feel good that the, uh, the ankle looks good. And he seems healthy. But Rivers is absolutely the story of this game. Uh, The Chargers had 312 first half yards and turned it into a whopping nine points. And they had so many opportunities to win this game. None bigger than late in the game. Down seven. Rivers in control with a chance to tie this game or win it with the two-point conversion. And he throws that fourth interception. This is a man who has to be somewhere else in 2020. And you, if you haven't been watching the Chargers for years, which I'm sure you have, you just have that sinking feeling. He is the perfect antithesis of Tom Brady. With Brady, doesn't matter how much time is left on that clock, you just have this sinking feeling that he's going to come back and win it. Don't give him a minute and 15 seconds because he's going to march down the field and beat you. You've always had that feeling in Tom Brady's career. Conversely, it's that inescapable feeling with Philip Rivers that he's going to find a way to blow this game. And one stat probably defines Philip Rivers' career. 61 losses by seven or fewer points as a starting quarterback, most in the Super Bowl era. How telling was the performance by Rivers? And do the Chargers have no choice but to move on in 2020 as they go into a new stadium next year? You know, I think they have a choice. And and that's interesting, Dave. I wasn't even... Thinking along those lines, I mean, that that is an interesting discussion to be had because this is the last year of his contract. So there's a lot of situations that might play out there. You know, do they want to give him a long-term deal? Uh, Do they want to franchise tag him? Does he want to sign a long-term deal there? Uh, He doesn't look to me like a guy that doesn't want to play anymore, but you never know. It's a very interesting situation. Uh, And And an uncanny moment last night is just everyone watching that game on social media knowing what was going to happen. Dave, I mean, we should think about this and brainstorm. I don't know how many other situations in life you feel like you already know what the outcome is going to be in sports. It's crazy. I mean, it used to be like when Clemson would uh, lose to a team they shouldn't have after they were 7-0, and and we would call that Clemsoning. They've gotten rid of that. But 
I can't think of anything else that feels as predictable in the NFL, in, in sports, as Phillip Rivers losing a game late, an epic, valiant comeback. And every once in a while, they actually win those. But most of the time, they lose. It ends in a Rivers interception. I can't tell you how much time I feel like I've spent on the Red Zone channel watching that happen over and over and over again. It just seems like his M.O., their M.O. So, number one, that's the big Chargers takeaway from last night's game. In terms of some analysis, I mean, it's not easy when both your starting tackles are out. So, Rivers was not in a good situation there. Frank Clark was able to totally dominate the game. But the Chargers really lost this, Dave, in the first half. I mean, they had 312 yards of offense in the first half to 109 for the Chiefs. 200 more yards of offense. They were losing 10-9. 10, you scored nine points with 312 yards of offense? That's really when they lost the game. I don't know, frankly, why they didn't run the ball more. They were getting five yards a carry, and you're going against a, a bad Chiefs run defense. And yet, 54 passes, 19 runs. Don't really understand that. Guys were dropping like flies on the other side for the Chiefs. We can get into the, I'll get into the Chiefs part of it in a second. But for the Chargers, now it's a lost season. Now it's just playing out the string and trying to get some wins. And I don't know, maybe Phillip Rivers' performance down the stretch does impact what the organization wants to do with him. They're going to have a very unique decision to make. And I wasn't even thinking that way a couple weeks ago. Well, I, I thought about it. Our friend, uh, Michael Giannetti, who's coming up from Spot Track, he put out the current contract projection for Philip Rivers because it is the last year of his contract at three years, $94 million. And there's just no way if you're Dean Spanos, if you're that organization, can you hand him in the, in the neighborhood of $100 million when you've seen this story? You know how it plays out. This was a Super Bowl favorite, according to some very smart people that followed this game, picked the Chargers to win the Super Bowl and said they had top three roster, top to bottom. Now, the Melvin Gordon holdout and the Derwin James injury certainly changed a lot of things, but it's hard to find a more disappointing team, and it just feels like you got to rip the Band-Aid off, move on from Phillip Rivers at 38 years old. But how many quarterbacks are available Next season, let's go to the Chiefs' side of this now. That's what's tough to figure out. Good point about Frank Clark. Finally looked like the guy that they paid for, that they traded for. Tyreek Hill hurt earlier in this game, which certainly impacts that offense. But they just don't look scary. Do you feel better about their Super Bowl chances? Or do you feel worse despite the fact that they won a divisional game, technically on the road, down there in interesting conditions with an injury? That's a good question, Dave, because I can give arguments for both. And Mm. let me just say this before I forget. One of our millennial producers, Steve Jung, he said it exactly right on our private Slack channel that his favorite thing is 7.25 p.m. Eastern time on Sundays. You're watching the Chargers and Rivers on the red zone mount this epic comeback. 
and the announcers will say, 60 minutes will be seen in its entirety following the conclusion of this game. That that I've spent half my life watching Phillip Rivers in the red zone or on the red zone channel late in games. As for the Chiefs, you know, on the one hand, watching them and their struggles and Tyreek Hill hurts his hamstring and then LaShawn McCoy and uh, Damian Williams go out and they just don't look great on offense. Uh, part of me is like, man, they're not going to the Super Bowl. And I don't think that they are. I mean, I, I, you know, I don't think they're good enough to win at New England and at Baltimore like they're likely going to have to do in some way, shape, or form. Those two teams, I think, are clearly a, a step ahead of them. But the flip side is Mahomes running it so well. You know, Mahomes ran so well that I kind of feel like, you know, that made me feel better about his knee. It made me feel better about him being able to be peak Mahomes in the playoffs. You know, the way he threw the ball against the Titans, the way he ran against the Chargers, he looks to me like he's got, you know, he can be every every bit the player he was before the injury. And that does give the Chiefs a chance. It gives him a a puncher's chance in the playoffs because I feel like, you know, he could help them get there and, and you never know how he could have a great game and they could beat the Ravens or Patriots. I just don't see him doing it three weeks in a row. Let's talk to Michael Gennetti from spot track. Check them out. The best information on contracts in all of sports, SpotTrack.com, SpotTrack on Twitter as well. Michael, good to talk to you, Dave Briggs and Ross Tucker. Um, let's get into both those quarterbacks and first start with Philip rivers. How big a financial decision are the Chargers facing with the guy who's turning 38 next month as they go into that new stadium in Los Angeles next season? Yeah, I mean, there's been no news. To me, that's the most interesting part of this is you've got a you know fringe Hall of Fame quarterback and there's been zero discussion about his contract that is set to expire in six weeks here. So I don't know if that's from Philip Rivers' side where, I mean, we've kind of heard through the tea leaves that this is a guy that, you know, might be on the backside of it, might be considering retirement. So maybe it's on him saying, I'm not ready to talk about a contract. But if and when, let's say Philip Rivers wants to remain the Chargers quarterback and, and they feel that he's the guy moving for the next few years, you know, that they, they want to keep on the board, you got to start at $30 million. I mean, you're, you've got six players now with, with $30 million contracts on the quarterback angle. So, uh, you, you know, like I said, fringe Hall of Famer, you know, veteran. Yes, he's 36, 37 now, but... Uh, you know, 35 is the bar. Mahomes is going to reset that bar. So I've got him valued at $31 million, which is probably on the low side, mathematically speaking, with for a guy like Rivers, even though he's going to have those four interception nights more and more now. It just seems like he's a, he's a player in decline. But regardless of that, $30 million is second-tier quarterback money now. So here's the question in my mind, Michael, on Rivers is there's really three options, I guess. One would be sign him to a long-term deal. Second one would be franchise tag because they don't know if they're going to be able to get another quarterback. And then the last option, I suppose, would be to just let him go. That doesn't seem like a very good option because even if they don't want him as their quarterback anymore, it would stand the reason that there's got to be a, at least one or two teams that would say, hey, he could help us get over the hump. He's still good enough that we would take him. What do you think the likelihood is of those three various options? If I had to rank them, I, I think the chance that he walks 
via the Chargers decision is the least likely. I think if he walks, it's going to be on his own terms. If the Chargers decide, I don't, I, this isn't, this isn't a fit anymore. I think there's a better chance Rivers just retires. Um, look, they've got Tyrod Taylor on that, on that roster right now, who's had a year to figure out that system. I, I don't hate that as a maybe a two-year bridge to get yourself to a, to the next rookie quarterback for the Chargers going forward. Um, so it's possible that they feel like they're covered either way. If Rivers walks away, Tyrod steps in. I, I don't think the, the Easton Stick kid they drafted is much of anything at this point. So um, the likelihood of him hitting free agency via the Chargers decision is probably rare. Not to mention, there's a pretty good laundry list of quarterbacks available where Rivers might be sixth or seventh on that list right now. So um, I don't think he wants to test the waters necessarily. This is a guy who's got a gigantic family. <laughs> I don't think he wants to uproot himself at this point of his career. So, I mean, it's it's part of it, right? But I, I think the Chargers probably think they're covered with a guy like Tyrod in the fold and, like I said, a list of free agent quarterbacks that, that might be available for them. Spot Track might have to do a breakdown of what college will cost for the Phillip Rivers family. Dak Prescott is playing some incredible football. Talking to Michael Gennetti from Spot Track, put up more than 840 yards passing in two weeks, something no Cowboys quarterback has ever done. What type of contract do you feel like he is asking for, and how high will Jerry go? Yeah, it's a great question because we, we really don't know anything at this point. We've been back and forth with this on a weekly basis, and, you know, Dak has done plenty now this year. I mean, it, it's, it wasn't fair those first four weeks to say this is who he is now. He's this 400-yard guy. Uh, but he's done it now for 11 weeks consistently with a couple of, uh, you, know, you know, a couple of down weeks mixed in there. I, if the asking price was 33 to start the year, my guess is what it was around there. Um, you know, it's 35 now. It's Russell's number now for sure because of his age and his abilities and, and the fact that it's Dallas Cowboys for quarterback situation. Um, does Dak... My, my, my question is this. I think the franchise tag is coming. The franchise tag is $27 million projection, uh, which is crazy low for what Dak is looking for, obviously. So what happens when Dak Prescott doesn't sign that, that franchise tag? They need to sign Amari Cooper. They need to sign a couple of other defensive players to keep that in the fold. Um, what happens when Dallas has a holdout quarterback throughout the summer and there's a laundry list of quarterbacks available, like I said? I just think this could be a major stare down between Jerry and Dak um, over a couple of million dollars, which I don't agree with. If if Dak thinks he needs to reset the market at $36 million, Jerry just needs to get that done. And it can be on a Kirk Cousins type deal. Dak's been durable, crazy durable for a guy that moves around as much as he does. I think you put yourself on a short-term, three-year, fully guaranteed contract like Cousins did and see what happens after that. That's the window the Cowboys are in anyway. So I don't think you have to go blockbuster, you know, reset the, the, the NFL historical contract situation with Dak. You just got to make them happy for a couple of years here on a guaranteed contract. One of the interesting things you delve into on your Spot Track podcast is Tua Tagovailoa, the devastating hip injury that he suffered Saturday. He had surgery Monday in Houston, successful from what we're told. That still, bare minimum, comes with a six-month recovery time before he's even taking part in any football activities, takes him past the NFL draft window. One, how much money did that decision or did that injury rather potentially cost Tua and what type of decision is coming regarding returning to Alabama or going ahead and entering the draft and rolling the dice? It's a great question. I, uh, I can't imagine he's back at Alabama for any reason. I mean, there's just so much discussion about, 
you know, the compensation in college football versus, you know, getting yourself to a professional status and letting things bear out. I think, I think there's a 99% chance that he still enters the draft and takes what he can get, knowing that, you know, the rookie contracts are great, but it's all about that second contract. So if, if he slow plays this thing, like I think he will, um, you know, he'll, he'll get himself to that second contract, the Carson Wentz deal where you're, you know, nearing, nearing hundred million fully guaranteed. That's what you want. Um, so to me, it's not about 2020 for Tua. It's about 2024, 2025, when you can really start to cash in. From a rookie contract standpoint, though, look, let's say he was a number two pick, right? Let's say that's where the big boards had him. That's that's four years, 35 fully guaranteed. Um, so now if he's a late first round pick, which is where many of the, of the experts are saying he may fall to, you're talking about four years, 10, 12 million dollars. So you're talking about you know, 15 to, to, to 20, anywhere from 15 to $20 million lost of guaranteed dollars because of the draft, draft stock falling as much as we think it might. Um, but look, at there's a, there's a silver lining to that, right? If, you're, if you fall into the late first round, let's talk about Lamar Jackson a little bit here. <laughs> he didn't go to the Cincinnati Bengals. Lamar went to the Ravens, who were built to win in a lot of areas. And when they figured out that Lamar was who he was, they were able to shuffle things and make and turn themselves into contenders immediately. There's a good chance that Tua, if he falls into the 20s in the first round, gets himself on a really great team who might be nearing the end of a current quarterback situation. He can sit out basically all of 2020, you know, rehab himself from a physical standpoint, build himself up, up from a mental and an NFL, you know, you know, a playbook standpoint, similar to a Mahomes situation in Kansas City. And then in 2021, it's, you know, it's all systems go. So it could be a blessing in disguise that he's got to sit himself out for 2020. Yes, he's going to lose some guaranteed dollars in the rookie contract. But from a football standpoint, it might be a blessing. Yeah, it's interesting, Michael, because I was thinking, I wonder if there's an argument to be made for him to go back to Alabama, be the number one pick and get the $40 million fully guaranteed as opposed to the 10 that's guaranteed if he's at the end of round one, not knowing, of course, exactly when he'll get drafted or what his prognosis is. I did want to ask you about Cam Newton. It's an interesting situation. He's under contract for one more year for $19 million, which I think represents good value for the Panthers and whoever would trade for him. But it's always tricky because I feel like the Panthers – could justify bringing him back and having him play out the deal. But if he's traded elsewhere, I kind of feel like Cam's going to say, uh, no, 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 I, I want a new deal. I'm curious your thoughts on uh, how a team might try to navigate that. It's a great question. You, I, I, would, I would imagine that those parameters would have to be worked out before any kind of trade is processed, sort of the wink-wink negotiations. I'm with you. I mean, Cam still thinks he can play at a at a high high level, and he can when he's healthy. Um, so my guess is uh, that yes, he's going to want some sort of extension or restructure tacked onto the 19 million he's set to make next year. If he can rehab this thing and get himself healthy, he can help anybody. I mean, he can help the Panthers obviously, upgrade the Bears, um, sl you know, slide into Tampa Bay and sort of figure out the Bruce Arians system quickly. I think there's spots for him. But it probably will come with some sort of restructure. Now, it, it also could go the exact opposite way, Ross. It could go. It could be that teams think 19 million is too much for a guy who's been injured as much as Cam has, and they really just want to see how this works for one year on a rental. And Carolina ends up having to pay some of that 19 million. We've seen that a lot more and more with these trades. That you know, if there's any sort of red flag built in, 
teams may have to take on a small signing bonus to pull some of that money out of the trade and make it a better deal for the receiving team. Um, I could see it going both ways. I could see, you know, Cam's physical abilities coming fully back in March put, and Carolina saying, you know, Chicago, well, let's do this. What are, what are you willing to give us? And Chicago, in turn, you know, throws him 35 to 40 million guaranteed on a new deal. Um, but I could also go the other way. If they wait this thing out, which is possible, because they might not know if they want to get rid of him or not, based on what you just said, he, he can still help Carolina. But if they wait and the suitors fall off the platform a little bit here because some, you know, Andy Dalton's and those guys go somewhere else. Um, I, yeah, it could, they could be stuck in a position where they're paying some of this contract to get him off the team. Michael Gennetti from spot track, check him out at SpotTrack.com, at spot track on Twitter. All right. So let's start there with the Carolina Panthers. With the caveat that we don't know Cam Newton's health next season. In five seconds, the Carolina Panthers day one quarterback, game one, week one, next season is Kyle Allen A, Cam Newton B, none of the above C. Cam Newton B. Wow, that's what I was going to say. I thought for sure you were riding the Kyle Allen train. No, I think, gotta I, think, I think he's got to rise up to Yeah, I think he's going to fire Ron Rivera and Marty Herney. And I think the new person that comes in is going to think that his best chance is a, is to see if Cam is healthy and go with Cam and see what he can do. Um, I don't really have high hopes for Cam, Dave. I mean, let's look at a couple things, right? Multiple shoulder surgeries. And now he's got the foot, which he may or may not have operated on. By the way, I think I'd feel a lot better about it if they operated on it than if they didn't. Yeah. Because if they didn't, it's like, okay, well, then how is it better? Um, but what are the odds that Cam Newton ever gets back to 2015 MVP, you know, form? Definitely less than 50%. And frankly, at his age, with his recent injury history and his recent performance, I'll say 20% maybe maybe 25% that he gets back to being like an elite player. And then you think about his litany of injuries over the years, including the second shoulder surgery, including the foot. What are the odds that he stays healthy? Uh, 25%. So Dave, if we're going 25 and 25%, uh, a quarter times a quarter is a 16th. That's not a real good odds that Cam Newton gets back to elite player and stays healthy. Will Colin Kaepernick get hired by an NFL team? That is the question that has dominated the last several days in sports. And Ross, I got a quick rapid fire for you. We're going next season. Teams that could use a quarterback. Obviously, Miami. Can you rule them out from the Kaepernick? No, I won't rule them out, but highly, highly unlikely. Cincinnati. Yes. Denver. Yes. You're ruling Denver out. Okay. Yes. Uh, if Philip Rivers is elsewhere, Chargers. Ooh, that's an interesting one. If they're trying to get people to come to the games and they're trying to get some attention, highly, highly unlikely, but I'm not going to rule that one out. Bears. Highly unlikely. Highly unlikely. And the last one is the Tennessee Titans. 
No, that would shock me. That's a, that's not happening. I that's can rule a that bad one. fit. That's a bad fit with the city of Nashville. There would be a lot of booze, a lot of lighting jerseys on fire and canceling season tickets. I, too, will rule that out. So what led to the Kaepernick combine and what is his future regarding the NFL? Let's talk about it with Mike Jones, USA Today, host of the Mike Jones Football Podcast. Good to see you, my friend. Dave Briggs and Ross Tucker, let's, let's turn back the clock a little bit before we get into his future and tell us what role Jay-Z played in setting up the Kaepernick Combine? He definitely was beating the drum, guys. Um, you know, he took a hit when he joined forces with the league and he said, we're past kneeling. Um, and, and a lot of people thought that that was dismissive and that he was really just using this to his advantage. And when if he really was truthful and, and earnest about social justice, he would have been trying to get uh, Kaepernick back into the league. So I know he had multiple conversations with Roger Goodell about finding a way to get Kaepernick back in. And eventually, and I'm not saying that's the only thing, but eventually the league came to this conclusion, well, the league, Goodell. Um, he did this without a lot of input. A lot of high-ranking people in the league did not know this was going to be coming. Um, so Goodell came to the conclusion of, hey, okay, Let's do this thing. Let's get him an opportunity. And yes, it was rushed in the way it was put together, but the talks have been going on for a while. All right. So, Mike, the the genesis of this was Jay-Z pushing Goodell to do this. So then it would seem that the motive was to give Colin Kaepernick a legitimate opportunity or at least the appearance of a legitimate opportunity and not set him up for a waiver trap as everyone seems to think that this whole thing was about getting him to sign something. What are your thoughts? You kind of talked about the genesis of it. What are, what's your belief as to the motive? Well, the motive, obviously the league wants this thing to go away. Um, I think Adele is at the point where no matter how it went away, whether he's back in the league or it's done, um, you know what? teams supposedly had been calling and so they knew that teams were wary of it because of the backlash it could happen league figures okay let's give them an opportunity let's give him an opportunity let's get this thing now why did it have to come together so quickly why didn't they sit down and figure out the terms together and then announce this thing i have no idea and again you can never just i don't know if it's simple enough simplistic enough to say oh this is all jay-z or if there was something else um behind goodell's motives and then the jay-z push helped um but it, there this is so such a tangled web and both sides distrust each other and i think that's why if you really don't trust somebody, you're looking for every little thing, like for a reason to, to not trust somebody. Um, and I think that the the waiver thing, um, I've heard that it wasn't a whole really that much different than a regular free agent tryout one. Um, I'm trying to, to get my hands on it so I can see for myself, um, but we'll see. Talking to Mike Jones, USA Today, host of the Football Jones podcast. You delve into this in depth. Is Colin Kaepernick the most divisive athlete of our times? And what was the reaction to you just writing a column about this? No, I, I, th I think he probably is. Um, I can't think of anybody right now uh, that would be more divisive. I mean, I had people hitting me up, you know, blasting me for because I said, 
even if you don't trust the league, this was your opportunity to get back in, change the narrative, flex on your your critics, um, and get what you want, and still be able to use your platform. And a lot of people in the league feel like he blew that opportunity. So I had people coming at me saying I was an Uncle Tom, um, that I was a bootlicker for the league. I had people saying that um, I was wrong in saying that um, he deserved an opportunity still. Um, and then I had people saying that I was right on with my point. So there were so many people with so many different opinions. And I feel like if you already were anti-Kaepernick, nothing of this weekend changed anything. It probably just further strengthened it in your mind. And if you were pro-Kaepernick, nothing of this weekend changed anything. You just were more convinced that yes, our guy has been done wrong and you can't trust the NFL. This was never about throwing. Yes, he went out there and showed he could throw footballs. We already knew he could throw footballs, but the league wanted to see if he could check off a bunch of specific boxes. Could he be flexible? Could he make it keep it all business? Could he answer tough questions? And he didn't trust them. And when he pulled his workout to the other location away from all those scouts, he didn't subject himself to um, that flexibility, to the questions that he was going to get during the interview session. And, and now there were a lot of people in the league who were kind of on the fence and now were turned off. Um, but again, I, I, no matter where you stand, your mind was not changed this weekend. So, Mike, one of my points from the weekend, and I want to get your reaction to it, everything you just described about the people calling you an Uncle Tom on one side and the people on the other side saying he doesn't deserve another opportunity, everything that happened this weekend, and I know that the Kaepernick – uh, hardcore supporters say blame it all on the NFL and blah, blah, but just everything that happened, the polarization of the people responding to you, the scrutiny, the news networks, everything. Isn't that as big of a reason as any as to why teams don't want to sign him as a backup quarterback to begin with? I mean, doesn't that on some level reinforce the hesitation, the trepidation that these teams have? with signing him or even having him into their facility for a workout. No, you're exactly right. That's why people have been hesitant because, yes, there's tons of teams out there. If you look at their backup quarterbacks, they are trash. Um, and teams could use somebody with his athletic ability. Look, I know his last two years in San Francisco weren't very good, but when this guy's surrounded around talent, he can make a lot of plays. He can be effective. So why not give him a chance? Because you're scared of – everything else that comes with it, whether it's people, you know, not buying tickets, whether it's a bunch of media stuff, um, and, and you're not wanting to give power to somebody like that. Eventually, all that stuff would die down. But Ross, you know, in the NFL, they want conformity. If you're going to be really, really good, they'll look the other way on a lot of stuff. You know, I mean, Antonio Brown is a perfect example. Uh, you know, got his way out of Pittsburgh, got to Oakland, worked his way out of there, and the Patriots were willing to give him a chance because he's super talented. But eventually, it's just not worth the distraction and worth the headaches and everything. And I think with Kaepernick, a lot of people felt like, hey, if this guy was a Pro Bowl, All-Pro quarterback, maybe we give him a chance. But he's, you know, people see holes in his game and feel like it's just not worth the headaches and everything. And when he had the opportunity this past weekend to show that he was all business, he still had to make a statement. And a lot of people feel like he was more committed to showcasing to the world than he was showcasing himself to future employers. And that's a reason why a lot of people wonder still if he really actually even wanted to play. 
Mike, I'm so glad you just said that last part. Because yesterday on this show, I said, look, I'm not going to say what Colin Kaepernick should have done. I'm just going to say that if I was in that position and I really wanted to play football, it was my number one priority was to get back in the NFL, I would have signed the waiver. I would have done the NFL's combine in front of 25 teams. Afterwards, I would have said, look, all that other stuff is behind me, and uh, I just want to play football. Like, I, that's what I would have done. And I get criticism from people, you know, this is the problem. Someone, uh, a person that's not of color should never put themselves in the shoes of someone that is, that is of color and blah, blah, blah. I'm not, I, I'm just saying what I would have done. What, right. what am I missing? Like, if, if playing football is the number one priority, what am I missing, Mike, about not just going through the workout, signing the waiver, you already made the money from your first lawsuit or whatever, sign the waiver, do the workout, and afterwards just say what you know they want to hear rather than the owners and Roger Goodell need to stop running from the truth. Yeah, uh, you know, and look, I am 100% on board with everything he's trying to accomplish off the field. But the thing is this, anybody with half of a brain knows how to fake their way through a job interview. You say what you got to say, and, you know, once you get back in that uniform, do whatever, like I said, flex on them, make your statements, continue to use your platform for good. He could have done that. Even if he did not feel comfortable with that waiver, my issue was you saw that waiver ahead of time. You could have, even Saturday morning at 10 o'clock, hey, everybody, I want you to know that these are the issues I have right here. This is why I'm not going to go to the workout, but now... All you scouts who are in town, you have adequate time to get over to this location. I still want to do the interviews. I still want to talk to you guys. I still want to showcase. Um, instead of just the quick, you know, stunt switcheroo where there were fans and security already set up there well ahead of time, which it took if he was really going to just it was last minute. All that stuff wouldn't have been in place. But it was a power move for him because he didn't trust the league in their power move. And so that's why I'm disappointed because I felt like and. and talking to a bunch of people, players, executives, scouts, people who did want to see him back in the league felt like if he had to play this thing right, he could have worked his way back into the league and then he could have had his Ali moment um, and, and, and really continued to do more good. The Kaepernick Combine was moved 60 miles from the Falcons facility, didn't want to sign a waiver, wanted the media in wanted to control the narrative, and now the narrative looks like he does not get a shot in the NFL, at least in the short term. So what happened? What's the legal backdrop to the drama on Saturday outside Atlanta? Let's talk to sports attorney Darren Heitner, founder of Heitner Legal, the author of How to Play the Game. Darren, thanks for coming on. Dave Briggs and Ross Tucker, can you give us some insight about what happened with this waiver, how different it was from the standard waiver the NFL always asks players to sign before a workout? Well, first of all, thanks for having me, guys. Um, this was an atypical situation from the very beginning. You had the NFL make an announcement, and there were a mere five days between that announcement and when this workout was supposedly going to occur, and we find out a mere one hour prior to that scheduled workout that it's not going to happen at all, and that, in fact, Colin Kaepernick's going to be participating 
at a non-NFL-sanctioned workout at a local high school miles away from where it was supposed to occur. And as you mentioned, it essentially is at least being framed as boiling down to a waiver. We'll probably never know whether that's a red herring or whether, in fact, that truly is what caused an impasse between the parties. But what we do know is that Colin Kaepernick desired a very short, concise, and specific waiver. And the NFL wanted a thorough, much longer waiver that included uh, very broad uh, language that would essentially relieve them from any potential claim that Colin Kaepernick could possibly bring. Now, we have a war of words. Colin Kaepernick's team says that they were concerned that if you read into the language, it's clearly uh, waiving any rights to bring employment-related claims, while the NFL has somewhat silently taken an opposite stance, saying that's ridiculous. This was simply related to being broad and waiving any claims that Kaepernick may have had relating to physical injury at the uh, scheduled workout. In essence, what it would boil down to is whether Kaepernick would essentially be waiving all of his rights with regard to potential future claims against the NFL on collusion. Remember, this is a man who previously filed a grievance against the NFL concerning collusion. And I wouldn't think that the NFL is wrong to treat this situation a bit differently than a normal workout because it's providing an opportunity to somebody who previously sued the league. Now we can go further and deeper in questioning why is the NFL doing this at all, potentially establishing new precedent. I mean, it's never really provided this opportunity from a league standpoint to a player in the past, but um, as far as the waiver itself, you certainly had a dispute over the form. And I guess because there was such a short amount of time, that being five days, there wasn't uh, the proper amount of time to really flesh this out, and ultimately you saw there was an impasse. So here's what I don't understand, Darren, and maybe you can explain it to me. You know, he filed the grievance, he and Eric Reed, they settled that grievance supposedly between $1 and $10 million or whatever. Correct me if I'm wrong, but anytime you do something like that, where there's a grievance or a lawsuit or whatever, isn't part of that you signing away your rights to be able to sue again later? Like, I'm I'm thoroughly confused as to how the NFL is worried about him suing when they already settled. And when they settled, why would they not settle in a manner that didn't allow him to have a, a, an additional collusion lawsuit? That's a great question. So... In essence, what the, the language that the NFL was putting into its release and waiver for this tryout includes a lot of language that is very standard in a release that's attached to a settlement agreement, similar to the settlement agreement, I'm sure, that Kaepernick signed with the NFL relating to his grievance. And that language includes release of any and all known and unknown claims that could have been brought against the parties. It, uh, it never it, or rarely waives the right to bring future claims for future acts. And so I, would, I, I strongly believe that the agreement that was signed between Kaepernick and the NFL to settle the grievance would not have included language 
that would prevent Kaepernick from suing the NFL in the future should the NFL in, and its teams engage in collusive acts. And so that would be where the concern is on Kaepernick's side and also on the NFL side with regard to the language in this particular release. But really, Darren, I mean, if, if, he, if the top priority for him was playing in the NFL again, I've seen multiple Twitter lawyers. They're real lawyers. They're just on Twitter. You are too, I know. But I've seen multiple lawyers on Twitter say he should never have signed this waiver. Uh, Florio said it would be malpractice, blah, blah, blah. I guess I got to tell you, Darren, I was also told I shouldn't sign a waiver on my back when the Falcons wanted me to sign an injury waiver on my back. But I would have because I really wanted to play. I mean, at some level, if the top priority was playing football again in the NFL, then the waiver really wouldn't be that big of a deal, and, and you would just sign it, right? If your top priority was really playing football and not maintaining the ability to sue again in the future. You and I are aligned on that particular point, and I think that's being lost in the shuffle. You know, if in fact, it's hard to, to dive deep into this and really understand what the priorities were for each party. I, I truly don't quite get why the NFL was uh, involving itself in something like this. But if Colin Kaepernick's goal, if his ultimate goal was to play again in the NFL, then certainly he needs to understand, he and his representatives, that he lacks leverage in this situation. There's been three years where NFL teams could call him and his representatives up at any point in time and work him out. That just simply did not occur. And here you have the NFL basically providing an olive branch with all the teams indicating a willingness to either attend or look at the film. And so he's given this opportunity, if in fact he wants to play, to showcase his talents in front of the decision makers. So he gained some leverage in the sense that the NFL provided him this platform. And it appears that he used that leverage instead of for an effort to, to truly try to become a part of a professional franchise, instead utilizing it to broker further deals with Nike, which was supposed to be using content for, for a further film uh, or, or advertisement, um, you know, wearing some new sneakers and putting himself back in the spotlight where all of us are now talking about him again. So not because he's exhibiting his skill on the field, but instead because he's a controversial subject. So I do wonder whether there was some sort of other motive that was more advanced than, than performing for an NFL team. Because again, he lacked the leverage here. He should have, from, from my reading of, of the waiver and the release, I would have had a hard, I would have explained the nuances to him. I would have told him that it may not be the best form possible, but I'd explain the positives and the negatives. And if in fact you want to play in the NFL, I'd probably recommend that he signed it and, and performed at the, at the workout. Darren, uh, sort of transitioning here, speaking of the NFL and how they go about things, I guess I just have a general question when it comes to the NFL and any legal issues they have with players like Colin Kaepernick or anyone for that matter, is there a, a rhyme or reason in the timing for them as to when they actually investigate people? Because I guess I'm always wondering 
why they don't do it right away, but there's got to be some logic or reasoning that I'm missing. Is this a broad question with regard to any investigation whatsoever? Correct. Any NFL <laughs> investigation, it seems like sure. it's always like a while later that they end up interviewing whoever it is, whoever, you know, unless it's like an on the field thing, it seems like it, there's always a, a, a lapse of time. Well, anyone that's familiar with the workings of the NFL and the collective bargaining agreement, I believe has an appreciation that Commissioner Roger Goodell essentially serves as judge, jury, and executioner. Um, and again, it's, it's largely a bargain for process between the union and the commissioners, often the teams. Um, oftentimes the union is much more concerned with regard to getting a larger revenue share and some of these other issues that are very important become, um, you know, sort of type B issues that never really are, are, are addressed properly. But with that in mind, it really comes down to this extensive power in the commissioner's office to essentially govern the process by which these investigations take place with very little guidance as to whether or not things need to move swiftly. And so, I personally believe, as somebody who works with many players um, and many agents, that it's oftentimes used, the, the lack of urgency on the commissioner's office side is often used as uh, a pressure point, uh, knowing that it can cause indirect harm to a player based on uh, the lack of diligence or speed in, in pushing along these types of investigations and ultimately it can cause a player to lose out on a particular season. I mean, teams are, are reluctant to sign a player if the player can be put on the commissioner's exempt list for, for certain, because obviously then the player is not allowed to play. Meanwhile, the team has an obligation to pay the player. So that's a, that's a big losing situation for the team. Alternatively, if the player is going to be suspended while the team may not have to pay the player, it's still not advantageous for the team to be signing the player and going through that process if the player can't play. So the player oftentimes is in purgatory while these investigations take place. And the slower that these things prog progress, um, I would say the more the player is prejudiced. Fascinating insight about the legal process and how that might apply to some very high-profile NFL players. Major League Baseball must be happy that it is NFL season. It has allowed somehow, some way, the massive and ever-growing sign-stealing scandal to largely be swept under the carpet in terms of the sports conversation across the country, but it ain't going away. It's only spreading to other organizations like the Red Sox and the Mets. Let's talk about it with the former Houston Astros pitcher, a World Series champion from 2008 with the Phillies. And most importantly for this conversation, my Little League baseball teammate, Brad Lights Out Lidge. Now, next time, Brad, we need you on video because I'm going to put up a picture of you <laughs> and me in Little League with the Bruins, our glory days. Man, it was a long time ago. Good to have you on the program. All my years in journalism and broadcasting, I have never interviewed you once. You can tell you can tell Ross Tucker how terrible I was as a baseball player. <laughs> well, Dave, first of all, it's great to be on with you, buddy, and and uh, and to rekindle some memories. Yes, we we actually 
I don't know. I felt like we had a pretty darn good uh, Arapaho Youth League team, uh, the AYL Bruins, and, and I think we did a pretty good job. So I, I remember you being pretty good. I think you're cutting yourself a, a little short there. But um, overall, pretty talented squad. I definitely at that point was, was not in the top half of the players on our team, I'm pretty sure. And I think you were. So I'll, I'll give you some. I'll give you some props right there. And uh, by the way, Dave was a was a pretty good little quarterback back in the day as well. So um, you know, we, we kind of uh, we made our way from from sport to sport. And I and I'm proud to say that I don't remember uh, uh, us using any electronic equipment to to steal signs that baseball does it. <laughs> How widespread is this sign stealing scandal? What should Major League Baseball do about it? Yeah, well, I think I think honestly, at the moment, I think teams, probably a lot of teams, have dabbled in and out of doing it during the course of a season uh, until maybe another team catches on or it becomes too obvious and, and guys say, oh, maybe we need to back off. Like somebody might catch us doing that. The Houston Astros and you know the 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 damning videotape, if you watch it, is is pretty. It's pretty bad. I mean, it's it's so aggressively like you know we don't care. This is wrong. Uh, we're going to do it anyway. It's, it, it, it's surprising. It's a little bit shocking. Now, in 2017, we know the Red Sox are trying to use the, you know, the iWatch or the Apple Watch or whatever in their, uh, in their dugout. So we know that other teams were doing this as well. Uh, the Red Sox were caught fairly early. How long the Astros were able to do it, no one really knows quite exactly yet. Um, but I would have to say that probably, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't even want to throw a number out there, but uh, definitely more than a handful of teams um, we're trying to figure out ways to use uh, electronic devices to uh, to be able to get an edge. And, and I think that, you no, know, obviously this is something in baseball where it's like, oh, well, if everyone was doing it, is it really that big of a deal? It, it is a big deal. Um, you know, there, everyone accepts the fact that uh, if a pitcher is tipping pitches, you know, so be it. If, if a guy is able to relay signs in from second base because the catcher's uh, making things too obvious when he's putting his fingers down, so be it. But when you're using – uh, you know, cameras and, and, you know, video cameras in center field and relaying signals electronically, then, then we've really just kind of done, done something pretty bad here. And, and teams are um, – here's the thing. Like, if you're a player on a team and you hear that other teams are doing that and then somebody comes to you and says, hey, we can do it too, check it out, it's going to be pretty hard for you to sit back and say, oh, you know what, no, I'm going to take the high road. I, I want to hit, uh, you know, 250 while the rest of the league hits 300 because – I'm, I'm a very ethical person. You would hope that everyone would do that, but in truth, it's just not the way things work out. And if you hear that other teams are doing something, then you're going to want that edge. I mean, baseball players obviously are so competitive, as all professional athletes are, but also every professional athlete is always looking for a little edge here or there, and if they can get it, uh, they're going to try and figure out how to do that. And if you hear that other people are doing it, then it's probably like, well, what's Major League Baseball going to do, punish the entire league? They can't do that. So let's just go ahead and do it. Um, and I think that, unfortunately for the Houston Astros, they are the ones at the end of the day that got caught. Uh, you know, the Red Sox did get cat, uh, caught a little bit, but it seemed to blow over pretty fast. And it was almost like, oh, we're in this new day and age, and we just have to throw out some rules about what's okay and what's not okay. That's not okay. Okay, let's turn the page. Whereas the Houston Astros one seems largely egregious right now. And I, 
Um, I think MLB has every day that passes that, that there's not some kind of consequence or some kind of repercussion for this is, uh, is a difficult thing because I'll tell you, I mean, honestly, we have so many callers on my radio show that, that, that want to ask about what is going to be the penalty for this. Just tell us what the penalty is so we can move on in our minds so that we can understand MLB is doing something and that this won't happen again. There needs to be some repercussions handed out as soon as possible. So I guess my question, Brad, would be Dave has read over the last couple weeks or whatever the home road splits for the Astros in 2017. And they hit the ball a lot better on the road than they did at home. So I'm wondering what the explanation for that could possibly be and why this thing evidently didn't help them as much as you would think it would. Well, that's, that's a heck of a good question. And, uh, you know, I wish I could, could give you the best answer for that. I think baseball is just kind of crazy sometimes in that, um, that things don't always play out. Even if you have the sign, sometimes, you know, your certain matchups just aren't working as well. Um, you know, sometimes you're more comfortable in certain other places. I don't know exactly, you know, how to, how to quantify that, um, how long of a stretch maybe they did or did not have the ability to, to, to get the signs from center field and relay them to their hitters by banging on trash cans. Um, but that being said, there's no doubt that they did it. And as I also said, the evidence is very convincing. So, um, you know, if you're caught once, uh, it, it's, it's too late. You know, so even if it just happened for one game um, and it didn't really affect their home road splits because, um, you know, it was a short duration, well, that's, that's fine. But it, it still happened and it still is, is very obvious that it did. Talking to Brad Lidge, won a World Series with the Phillies 2008, went 41 for 41 in saves that season with the Phillies. Your career ended in 2012. Were you aware of electronic sign stealing then? And what was your reaction when you heard the story, when you heard what Mike Fires had to say? Was this something that was widely known? So it was not something that was widely known. And, and I, was, I was pretty surprised. Yes, I was very surprised, actually, that Mike Fires said anything because – you know, baseball doesn't happen very often where you kind of call out your, your former teammates. And, um, you know, I, I get his rationale and reasoning to a certain extent. It's just still very uncommon. You don't see guys, you know, kind of say, now that I'm not with the squad, I'm going to say the things that they uh, were doing. And, you know, maybe if you go to a new team and you say, hey, make sure when there's a runner on second base, you know, I remember my, my teammates used to, used to relay signs in really well. You've got to be really careful. That makes sense. Uh, but to, to kind of say it in that way was surprising. In 2012, when I, my last year, um, I honestly, there wasn't a whole lot of any electronic science stealing going on then that I was aware of. You're always hearing about certain teams, uh, you know, finding ways to relay signs. Uh, you know, when you, when you play certain teams at home and they're doing great that year, you always are wondering, are they relaying signs in somehow? Are they getting some kind of advantage somehow? But you know, it wouldn't have been done electronically, I don't believe, at that point. I think it would just be too difficult to do with, with electronics, I guess, at that point. I don't think they would, you know, the advancements in technology over the last few years were, were quite affecting baseball yet. Um, so I, I was not aware of anything when, when I left the game. Talking to Brad Lidge, former Astros, former Phillies pitcher, won a World Series in 2008 with Philadelphia. Hall of Fame names uh, came out yesterday. Derek Jeter probably gets the second unanimous uh, selection to the Hall of Fame. Curious about three guys. That's Kurt Schilling, Barry Bonds, and Roger Clemens. Will any of them get in? 
Boy, I think I think they're all going to be pretty close. And, uh, you know, Clemens and Bonds for many, many years are continuing to trend toward that Hall of Fame. Um, I, I think this year they're probably going to be right up against it. You know, last year they didn't necessarily go up a, a ton. Um, but I think at the end of the day, people are very – like, it, it's, it's the ones that – that are egregious and like the same associates of the world that we all feel comfortable with saying, oh, you know, PEDs were done uh, and we're not going to vote for that guy. Well, in some cases, uh, and, and I guess it's just the case really with Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens. I mean, you're talking about two guys that were um, that were so good for so long and, and the speculated time of when they potentially took PEDs seems to be in the latter part of their career when their numbers really became uh, outrageous, and I think that people look at them and say, but you know what, they were Hall of Famers before then, so we feel comfortable voting for them. I think we're going to continue to see them trend toward it, but I don't think they're going to be in it this year, um, even though they're going to be very close. Maybe next year is the year. And for Kurt Schilling, I think he does have a very good chance this year, because you know, I mean, you mentioned Jeter, and, and he should get 100% of the votes after Mariano Rivera did. It only makes sense. Um, and I think this is a year not a ton of other guys that you're circling. I mean, you know, it's one of those deals where even though it doesn't make a ton of sense, sometimes there's guys in our Hall of Fame uh, and somebody like Schilling might be affected in a negative way uh, if there was four or five guys on that ballot that were no doubters, but they're not. So I think that that actually helps out a guy like Schilling. I think more people are going to look at his case. You know, every year these voters, and we talk to them all the time, you know, they go back and they look at the numbers and they're kind of like, well, you know, for, for certain guys, maybe, maybe it was a little bit better than we thought. Maybe I'm going to switch my mind this year or change my mind this year. You very rarely see guys go the opposite direction and get less good. So I think for a guy like Schilling, this could, this could potentially be the year. Hi, everyone. This is Dave Briggs. Thanks for listening to the Home and Home Podcast. Remember, you can watch or listen live every day from 8 to 10.30 a.m. Eastern Time exclusively on the Radio.com app or on the web at Radio.com slash home. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See t